this is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. For the best in cosmic American music, check out WCBN FM Ann Arbor. All right. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio um, with me Ebony Roberts, the book on the table with us, The Love Prison Made and Unmade, My Story. Ebony, thanks so much for coming down to the station tonight, today. Thank you. I'm really, um, really honored to be here, and, and thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to meet you. Um, I should say we're taping the program. It's the 21st of November, 2019. And Ebony, you're in town. Um, you're you're giving a, a, a reading and a Q&A, a talk at the Ann Arbor District Library. This will have happened <laughs> by the time we air. Um, and you're you're in town with the the University of Michigan Prison and Creative Arts Project PCAP and also University of Michigan Carceral State Project, um, also uh, in collaboration with Literati Bookstore and Ann Arbor District Library, yes. of course. Um, so. I'm so glad you had time to come to the station as well. Uh, before we go any further, I'll read the short bio in the back of your book, okay. your memoir. Ebony Roberts is a writer, researcher, and activist who has worked in the food justice and prison abolition movements for nearly 20 years. She recently served as program director for Hashtag Beyond Prisons, an organization designed to uplift the voices of those impacted by the criminal justice system. She received her BA in social relations and psychology and a PhD in educational psychology from Michigan State University. She lives in Los Angeles and traveled here today. Yeah. Well, yesterday. Okay. So, Ebony, this, this is your, your memoir, The Love Prison Made and Unmade. Um, and there may be, may be plans in the works for another book down the line. But why... Why this book? Because the subtitle seems very important to me. Mm -hmm. My story. Right. Yeah, this book um, has been um, in the making um, almost since I met Shaka Senghor um, uh, 14 years ago. And um, when I, um, when he and I fell in love, uh, we talked about writing a book together. We were going to do a sort of a he said, she said about how we met and, and how we fell in love. And he's a writer and I'm a writer. We had imagined this beautiful story told from both of our sides. A of the fairy story. tale. Uh, of yeah, sorts. a fairy tale. And um, we had both started writing parts of the book. And then he came home and uh, ended up writing his memoir. And in his memoir, he shared parts of our story and how we met and fell in love. And so he was like, you know, I think you should write 
a book on your own and tell your side of the story because people want to know, like, how did this woman um, with a Ph.D., you know, fall in love with this man convicted of second degree murder? And so there was so much of my story that hadn't been told in his book. And he felt like I should tell the story. And I resisted because I'd never written a whole book before by myself. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to write this book. And but you did all that writing for your Ph.D. I mean, it's that's so its different. own thing, yes. isn't it? Though That's what I, I would. Yes. Let's talk about that, too. But, yes, OK, yes, but yes. But not to interrupt right now. We'll yes. get back to it. But it was it was um it was a it was a very different undertaking, so much more personal and and um having to go back into my childhood and, and share things that I felt um had an impact on who I became and the types of decisions I made in love and relationships. And so um when um his memoir um made the New York Times bestsellers list, we were on tour and we were going into cities and so many people were curious about my story and so it gave me sort of the the push I needed to go ahead and finish the book you, because you literally saw your audience when you were yes. out on this book tour. Yes, yes. And and so because of you know, he had um, touched a little bit on me in this in my story people were like I want to know about this woman like who is Ebony who is this woman that stood by him for four years and was an integral part of his transform not transformation in prison but his transition home after he got released and so um it was it was the push I needed and so I started writing I looked through you know we had exchanged hundreds of letters and because we were planning to write a book together, we had kept all those letters. And so literally hundreds of our letters, some typed, handwritten, cards we had shared, notes. And I read through every single one of them and started building out the book um, to help refresh my memory in terms of timeline and how things evolved over the um, four years that he was incarcerated that we were together. And how did you, because as you, as you were saying earlier, you begin... The, the love prison made and unmade, my story, begins with the stories from your childhood in, in your parents' yeah. home, um, your rela- the, the relationship you're, between your mother and father. Um, how, so this story traverses along lots of time, as mm-hmm. many memoirs do. Yeah. Um, so how did you uh, navigate the rhythm of it, like where you were... The, the moments of the story that you bring out, because I think there there's like lovely moments when you're on a family road trip, um, leaving Detroit in the, at night in the dark and arriving in the mountains um, in Mississippi mm-hmm. at your great grandparents farm. Um, yes. When you're waking up and your brother's waking up. Yeah. Yeah. It was. um you know, going back into my childhood was um, it was hard to choose the stories to tell because there's so many stories and um, I probably could have written half the book just about my childhood. Um, And so I didn't want to get lost in my childhood um, because I know that people would be eager to hear about, well, what happened with, you know, with her meeting this man in prison. So I didn't, I wanted to give people enough of the story so they could get an understanding of who I was and the things that shaped who I became. Um, And so for me growing up in Detroit, that's such an integral part of, you know, anybody growing up in Detroit in the eighties and nineties at the height of the crack era. And so much that was going on in the city at the time, like that shaped who I became my parents, you know, marriage, you know, shaped who I became. And so I chose stories that I hoped would paint a picture of the types of things that, um, 
really impacted the way that I thought about life and about love and I think would, you know, fit into the larger story that I was telling about, you know, this fairy tale love story with um with Shaka. So And with the the decision to 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 talk about it as a fairy tale, um that connects to the dreams like well, cuz yeah. some of the early stories there's a very powerful story that leads off with um like part of uh, the climax of the story with your father with a gun mm-hmm. to, to your mom and she runs out and 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 it doesn't isn't hit mm-hmm. by bullets but and escapes and um but you then balance this in some well no balance is the wrong word i don't mean to say that because there's a reason you lead with mm-hmm. this early with this story because there isn't a balance but but there's moments when the family is like all piled on the the couch and some of the shows that you're mm-hmm. watching are like the huxtables and mm-hmm. and these families uh on tv that have these lives that are quite perfect seeming yeah of course on tv <laughs> and, then, and then of course like there's the young girl visions of the i think you say it also in the book like uh on the back cover but with uh not so but happily ever after is the larger print and then this is the story of how i sought my black prince in the least likely place a prison and so this prince charming yeah this, like, I was think, it a risk to call it a fairy tale or was it just yeah. what was true and honest? So was, you named it that because it was that. Yeah. Yeah. I know, it, you know, many people um, would um, would would not think of um, this as a fairy tale because of where he was. You know, prison is obviously not a um, idyllic place. It's 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 a very brutal, very violent um, place. And um and so I didn't want people to think that that part was the fairy tale. But in my mind, it was a fairy tale because he embodied everything that I had always dreamed of in a man. And that's the fairy tale. How so? Um, so growing up, um, I didn't have, you know, anyone who told me I was beautiful, who told me that um, I was worthy and that I deserved the kind of love and attention that I got from Shaka. And so um, I always wanted to be adored. And for me, you know, the the knight in shining armor comes in. And, and part of that, that fairy tale is, you know, the knight comes in and saves, you know, the princess or, or saves the damsel in distress. And so I had had this, this traumatic childhood and things that had happened to me. Um, and so there was a part of me that wanted to be saved, to have someone come in and say, I love you so much that I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you um, because I hadn't felt loved and protected by a man before. And so um, he he filled all of those empty spaces that I had from, you know, the absence of my father, as well as um, the, 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 the lovers I had had throughout, you know, my 20s who really weren't emotionally available or present. And so he was all of that, you know, at a time in my life, I was 30 when I met him. So it was a time in my life when, you know, my biological clock was ticking and I was looking for love and looking for um, a relationship, a forever relationship to settle down and start a family. And so when we met and he was this really smart guy and he's an amazing writer, um, those are all things that are attractive to me, you know, um, and um, and he was kind and thoughtful and, and everything 
um, opposite of what you'd think of a man convicted of murder, right? And so, um, you know, there's, there, you know, on he, the surface of things. on the surface of things, right? And so, I started to when I started to get to know him. And learned his story and realized, you know, the circumstances of the crime he committed and how different he had, um, how he had grown in those years that he had been in prison before we met. And, you know, that he may have committed murder, but he wasn't a murderer, that he didn't embody those qualities that we would consider. And I know that's a very touchy subject, especially for people who are on, you know, the the more conservative side when it comes to criminal justice. Um, but I saw the human. I saw the spirit behind, you know, the, the prison number. And that's what I fell in love with because um, I believe that people can be redeemed. I believe that people, um, you know, we, because of circumstances, especially in black communities all over the country, we're dealing with so much poverty and so much violence and so many, you know, systemic issues that lead young men and women into the streets, into crime. And, um, you know, all while they're making those conscious choices to, to do what they do, um, we can't forget the social economic, you know, circumstances that press upon them that make them make those decisions. And so, you know, being in Detroit, growing up in Detroit and, and having, you know, people that I knew who, you know, got caught up in the system, you know, I, I didn't look at him, you know, in the same way, look at Shaka in the same way that someone who never had any contact with the criminal justice system might see him or someone who had never, you know, had a family member or, or knew anything thing about that life. And so I saw beyond the crime, beyond the prison number, beyond all those things that would have said, you know, he, you know, throw throw him away because he's he's done this horrible thing and he doesn't deserve love. He doesn't deserve to even, you know, be free. Um, I looked beyond all of that. And this had also been um, choices you made going to Michigan State mm-hmm. um, for undergrad and and the, what you chose to study, social relations, psychology, and then continuing on for your Ph.D. Mm-hmm. That's and, and in a parallel way um, in the love prison made and unmade, you describe also this relationship with with God mm-hmm. or and, and the identity, you know, of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so these working together um it's no it's not surprising to me that you would yeah. say i can see the person i can understand redemption also, absolutely it also seems like maybe you wanted to save you wanted to be saved by mm-hmm. a prince charming but you wanted to save someone too mm-hmm. yeah i think that um I think, you know, when I psychoanalyze myself, uh, which I do often, you know, I had tried to save my father who was an alcoholic and um, I couldn't save him. He died when I was 12 years old. And in every relationship I had after that, it was always a trouble, a a guy who had a troubled past, who had a troubled life. And I thought I could save them with my love. I thought that I could. I had so much love inside of me that um, because, you know, I'm a a cancer and, you know, I love so deeply and so hard and just with so much force. And I felt like all they needed was love. That was, was what was missing in their life. To heal everything. To heal everything. That if they had love because that's what they didn't have, um, 
that that I could save them. And so almost every boyfriend or, or guy that I dated in high school um, and in college and, you know, my mid-20s, that was, you know, what it boiled down to. And so um, finding um, Shaka in prison and under the circumstances, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to be able to help him. I, I, I don't like to use the word save because I don't think I saved him. Um, but I certainly um, helped him and pre- helped prepare him for home, for coming home. And, and so many men and women don't have any supports or the, their families um, really don't know how to navigate the system well enough um, to really support them in the ways that they need. And so they come home and oftentimes end up going back to prison because they don't have the financial um, resources they don't have um, the social resources to be able to make that transition home. And so um, I tried to do everything I could to um, set him up for success when he came home. Ebony, let's take a short break. Okay. And then we'll come back. We'll talk more. Today on the program, Ebony Roberts is here. Her book, The Love Prison Made and Unmade, My Story. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got Jason behind the glass engineering. We'll be back. Makes me argue just to see how much you're in love with me. See, like a queen, a queen. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Ebony Roberts is here. The book, The Love Prison Made and Unmade, My Story, out this year with Amistad, an imprint of HarperCollins. Um, Ebony, we were talking about earlier about the the story, how this story, this memoir, um, was much different than the writing you'd done before mm-hmm. in academia, for mm-hmm. example. So when, and, and that Shaka was very much, um, encouraging you to have like your own book, like this individual book, mm-hmm. uh, what was it like to start drafting these stories and finding your voice as you mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than being part of the, like in the, part of a larger, like some sort of project collaboration, mm-hmm. um, with Shaka or, or the work that you'd done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, it was daunting. It was daunting. Um, I had written, um, shorter pieces, um, you know, maybe a thousand words, uh, and I had, um, tried my hand at some creative writing, um, and, um, by the time I had started like really, um, focusing on the book, I had written a few pieces that I shared on medium, which, um, got a, you know, um, good response. And so, um, I, th- those pieces were sort of my way of, of finding my voice and finding my, that writing voice because, you know, being an academic and writing a dissertation, I also am a researcher and have written, you know, um, more reports than I I can count. And that voice is very different 
than the voice you have when you're writing a memoir. And so um, I was, you know, testing out, you know, what that would look like to write, you know. And I also uh, read a book uh, that um, really helped me think about voice and think about writing a memoir. And it's called The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. And um, she's written memoirs, several memoirs herself. And so she wrote this beautiful book that really breaks down um, the how to write a, how to write a memoir. And she dissects several very famous memoirs throughout the book. And that really helped me. So I've started reading that. And um, I took the writing of this memoir very seriously. And I read several memoirs in the process. I read, again, um, the uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Um, I also read The Glass Castle. Um, I read, um, what are some other memoirs? I read another book by um, Asha Bandele, who, was, who wrote The Prisoner's Wife, a book about her relationship with a man in prison that was written maybe 20 years ago. Um, so I tried to get familiar with the memoir voice because it's a very different type of voice than um, writing a f- fiction or writing any other type of, you know, uh, more academic writing. And so I just got practice in doing that um, and, and, and got, you know, familiar with it through various, you know, through different drafts. And and it sounds like you deconstructed these memoirs that had mm-hmm. already been ones t- that you 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 knew that they were they were beautiful, meaningful, right? And um and is that um is that why you chose to have the epigraph from Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. Ebony? Yeah, yeah. She um is a huge influence, and um, um, I think that her you know her her book I know why why the cage bird sings was her first book. And it, you know, was just a beautifully told story. And um, most of it is within a few years of her childhood. And she just said, you know, just said the um, told her story in such a way that just was so compelling. And um, reading The Glass Castle, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I haven't um, read it. Um, Jeanette Walls. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a glass castle by Jeanette Walls. Her book, um, she talks about her alcoholic father and, um, that book really helped me. And so it almost gave me permission, you know, to talk about my father in, um, in the, in his duality. Right. So you talk, you meant, you asked me earlier about writing about, you know, that opening scene when my father, you know, raises a gun to my mother's head. And then there's stories of our family trips to Mississippi and being able to see my father as both the alcoholic, but also, um, the, the, the father and the husband and this loving person that he also was, it wasn't either or, you know, um, because he died, um, at such a young age, um, and the, the last memories of him were not very good memories. I had held on to that pain for 20 years. And so, you know, being able to read The Glass Castle and see her talk about her father and how complicated um, he was and how brilliant, but also how manic and how just, you know, wonderful he was as a father. But he had all these issues. Right. But the seeing her um, talk about him in the ways that she did. Um, helped me see that I could do both as well, that I could talk about the pain of, you know, um, my childhood and and how his alcohol addiction impacted our family and impacted me. But I could also write about um, how loving he was and how much people loved him and how, you know, great he was also as a father when he was sober. 
And you mentioned, Ebony, you mentioned permission in this, like yeah. seeing her story. Um, cause that's with memoir. It's interesting because it, I, in your acknowledgements page, you address that you, mm-hmm. you say that explicitly. Um, let's see. Uh, Um, And let me ask you question after question so that I could write a more complete story. Mama, thank you for giving me permission to write about our pain. Because it is, it's because it is my, it's your story, Emily, right? Like as, as the title says here, um, but in writing it, you're, you are writing our story, like your family's story too. And our pain, um, it's that seems like the most difficult part of the memoir because the family well your your father is gone but your your mom is alive mm-hmm. and and that's because you're what you're prepared to reveal and the ways you're prepared to be vulnerable on the page mm-hmm. that would be required of this memoir it's it's like you bring everyone along with you right yeah absolutely i couldn't have told the story without my mother and several um, other family members who helped fill in blanks and, you know, um, help me complete because I was very young um, when some of this was going on. And so while I have a memory of the general um, being able to write a story, um, you have to have some some details, you know, to bring people into the story with you. So, um, yeah, my mother. She didn't, (laughs) I think she probably hated to see me call when I would call and she knew that I was getting ready to ask her a bunch of questions. And, you know, she was like, what are you asking me these questions for? And like, she didn't really see the impact of their marriage on me as a woman now, which was really interesting. So she's like, why are you asking all these questions? She's like, I thought this book was about you. And I said, it is about me, but I am who I am because of who you were and how you raised us and, and the, the life that you, you know, exposed us to. And so she, you know, she reluctantly, you know, answered questions because she was like, that's in the past. You know, I don't want to relive that. Um, But she indulged me and I appreciate that. And my mom actually passed um, in September. And yes, thank you. And so I'm so glad that she was able to see me birth this book and um, that we were able to come to um, peace with some of those really painful memories that um, we really hadn't talked about. And, you know, I mentioned this a bit in the book, but, you know, in terms of permission, you asked about, you know, permission, you know, for many, many years, I did not cry um, at the thought of the loss of my father. I didn't cry for him. I didn't cry. I didn't really try to think too much about it. Um, And I think that because I hadn't mourned his death properly, I was holding on to that pain um, and I wasn't able to let go. And and part of that was because I was afraid that mourning him would be like betraying my mother because he had been violent towards her because he he had caused her so much pain and had caused us so much pain. And so to mourn him would almost be saying, I forgive him and that somehow would be betraying her. And I had to eventually... Um, realized that that was her pain, her story, and and that was for her to deal with and that I had my own story and that I had my own relationship with my father and that I had to heal that relationship in order for me to be able to be in healthy partnerships moving forward. And so it allowed me to let go of some of that um, 
pain and and just literally cry for him. And I I did that for the first time in my sometime in my 20s. And since then, I've done that, you know, many times where I actually, um, you know, have been able to speak of my father in endearing terms and not in the way that I remembered him at 12, because it was at 12 that he pulled the gun, that opening scene in the book, and he died six months later. So I never got a chance to reconcile that image of my father with the other images of my father as a, as a younger girl. And so being, um, so as an adult now and writing this book, um, I've healed in the process of writing. And is it, was it, and you said in the process of writing, so is it something about that when you're drafting it and you're telling the story and being with the story and being able to know that you were going to share it Mm -hmm. with a broader audience, Mm-hmm. That is, is that's part of, was that when you were also feeling that the healing was taking place, like in the making? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, when we, when we speak our truth in whatever form that takes, you know, for me, it was writing this book. Sometimes it's just getting in front of an audience and sometimes it's just sitting in front of a therapist. But when we're able to vocalize the pain and get it out, get it out of our head, get it out of, you know, whatever space we've, you know, we've, we've hidden it from others. I think that, um, that's when the healing can take place. And so there are many things that happened in the book that I'd never share with anybody else. And so, it allowed me to free myself from some of the baggage that I had been carrying from my childhood. And, um, it was writing the book that allowed me to come to face, you know, face some of those things and, and let it go because now it's like, it's, it's out there and I've, I, I have the freedom now to heal. It's thank you for being here today, Ebony. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, would you mind reading from the love prison made and unmade my story? Absolutely. We'll take a short break. We'll be back today on the program. Ebony Roberts. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. back. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today on the program. Ebony Roberts is here. Um, we've been talking about Ebony's book, the love prison made and unmade my story. It's, 
it's interesting too um the thinking about the book how the book the cover of the book how um you were saying just before the break that it's important to actually um say things out loud and and, and put words to mm-hmm. what the maybe hidden parts are in uh, the feelings or shadows that we keep mm-hmm. inside um and so i'm wondering it seemed interesting to me for the title too that the love prison made is the um the largest in the size font mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and unmade smaller and then in a separate line my story but in a different kind of script was that intentional was it mm-hmm. part of what you saw at work in this project mm-hmm. yes absolutely so the um the book is so there was this beautiful love story that I wanted to tell. You know, I felt like there was this fairy tale in terms of, you know, how we met. I definitely felt like, you know, it was it was divine, you know, a divine connection and that we had been brought together and we were these two souls that met under these unlikely circumstances and you know, we were meant to be together and we had created this beautiful love. And then once he came home, Um, That started to unravel. And part of the reason why it unraveled um, was because of trauma that he had um, from his 19 years in prison and then the trauma from his years in the streets prior to going to prison. And so there's so much that um, we don't talk about when it comes to PTSD in the black community. Um, But, you know, when many of the men and women that go to prison have this compounded trauma And that is unresolved trauma that they um, take with them into prison, which is also a very traumatic experience. And, you know, um, Shaka spent 19 years in prison. And when he came home, we didn't we didn't go to therapy. He didn't go to therapy. There was there was nothing that there were no resources. And and I think that because he felt like he had survived, if you will, it hadn't Um, broken him. Yeah. Prison. Exactly. The prison hadn't broken him. And and, and that does happen. There's some men who and women who mentally break down from the the years of being incarcerated. And that's the part of the intention of like solitary confinement and the treatment of, of inmates. And so he hadn't been broken. And so he felt like I'm good. I'm home now. I'm free. I want to leave that behind me. And so, um, but there were some triggers. There were some things that, that, that he had not dealt with that he thought he had dealt with in prison, but it was in theory, you know, when you're sitting behind, you know, and when you're in a prison cell and you're doing all this, this work, um, emotional work, it, 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 he had done some of that work, but he was, not in a situation to really be tested. And so once he came home and life started coming at him full speed and we were in a relationship and then we had, um, I got pregnant within the first year of his homecoming. So all these things, life was just coming at him really fast. And so um, our relationship started to unravel. And um, and, and I, I think that prison uh, played a huge part in the unraveling of, of our relationship. And um, so, yeah, so prison was, was the reason we met. It was the circumstances under which our love grew, but it was also a huge factor in the unraveling of it. So that's the, the title, the love prison made and unmade. Yeah. Ebony, can you, will you read for it, for something like, it looks yes. like you've got a, a middle chapter Yes, this is in um, the middle of the the book, 
And um, as I'm sure most um, can imagine, um, when I told my mom and and my family about our relationship, um, they were not very happy. With so much worry for you. Yeah, so much worry. And there's so much um, there's so much judgment. Most people don't understand. um, why anyone would fall in love with someone in prison, uh, why anyone would even consider. Um, and so I dealt with that. And so, um, it was, it was a difficult part of, of the journey. And I, and I felt very, uh, isolated and lonely because of that, because I didn't feel like I could share our relationship with other people. Um, and so I write a little bit about that. I could always read the judgment on their faces. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? What's wrong with you? I know that's what people thought when I told them about Shaka, even though they didn't say it. Instead, they said nothing, their silence filling the room. And then the questions would start. What did he do? How did you meet? When does he get out? Be careful was usually how the conversation ended. I had moments when I asked myself whether I was crazy. Am I crazy to wait? Am I crazy to expect happily ever after with the man who's been locked up half of his life? But our connection was almost cosmic, like two spirits meeting again. Sometimes love can't be explained. I was never ashamed of our relationship, but I was selective about who I shared Shaka with. I didn't want anyone burying seeds of doubt in my mind or forcing their fears on me the way Mama did. That meant much of my excitement about the things Shaka said or a beautiful moment we shared. I can't. I kept to myself. The last thing I needed was another opinion. Thanks, Ebony. Thank you. It's so immediate. Like you bring us into the your headspace of that time. Yeah, I try to. Um, relive all those moments and those emotions. And, you know, even though uh, Shaka and I aren't together anymore, um, reading the letters and reading um, through the the things that we share with each other when we were in love um, helped transport me back to that space when I was in love and when I felt those things. And so I tried to bring people into those moments um, of both love, but also um, angst and, you know, some of the loneliness and frustration that I felt and tried to get people to feel some of the things that I felt. With the letters, using the letters as like, it's, it's like you're a research into your own life, really. <laughs> I brought my research skills. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Writers write. Yeah. And, and then tell, and tell stories that, that need to be heard. Um, but in part of, part of the reason for telling this, this, your story too, is it to show that your, your own story with what you had to reckon with to find, because by the end of the book, we're, we're at the moment where you've been almost isolated again. Like you read a moment where you were isolated during, during the relationship, even in the high, the high points of it, the, mm-hmm. um, the growing love. Um, and then as the, when, um, Shaka came home, the unraveling, um, uh, you describe, you also say like the couples, you, you just didn't want to talk about it because his story, your story, the story of the, the two of you had been public 
too. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if you felt like you couldn't share because you didn't yeah. want to disappoint. Yeah. People. Yeah. So when he, um, when Shaka came home, um, he, uh, built a, um, career talking to, um, uh, student groups, um, on campuses like U of M. In fact, he used to teach with, um, prison creative arts project, um, one of their classes and worked with students who had gone into prisons. Cause he actually met the current director, Ashley Lucas, while he was in prison. And the, um, one of their, um, student programs that sends students into prisons to do, um, theater workshops and art workshops. And so he has a long history with PCAP. So it's just almost full circle for me. Um, and just as a side note, I actually, um, first met, well, not officially, um, met Ashley, but I, I, um, years ago, her father was in, was in prison and years ago, she did a one woman show that came to Detroit, um, about her experience, um, going back and forth to visit her father in prison. And so, um, I was, you know, in, um, maybe year two of my relationship with Shaka. And so when I found this, found out about this show, I went and that was one way of me connecting with another person who could relate to what I, what I was experiencing. Cause not very many people can understand or, or have any experience and can really empathize. And so, um, it was just interesting that years later I got a chance to actually meet her in person, but I saw her one woman show, um, years ago before we met. And you saw the power of her story yes. and in this, in a public, in an arts shaped like a public space like like a book is Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and how the power of her story um was something you needed at that time yeah and so that's what i feel that your book is as well ebony for others yeah yeah you know um i wanted people to see um what it's like to um to fall in love um to to not judge that you know there's so many um stereotypes about about women who get involved with men in prison and i wanted people to see you know um that all those stories are not the same that you know that there are women of of all types of women you know i'm an, i you know i've educated and, and and very smart and and um and if i might say myself say so myself attractive you know so there's you know so i didn't fit any of the stereotypes and so I wanted people to see you know that there's different types of women um that fall in love and that you know despite what someone may have done to get them in prison they're still human and um they can be redeemed and you know we um we can give them even if it's not in a romantic um, relationship we can um support them and give them um, the types of um, things that they may need to to make their transition home because the majority of them are going to come home. But then the other reason um, that I wanted to write the book is because of the books that I know of that have um, been written about men and women who have met in prison and, and had relationships, none of them talk about what happens once he comes home. So there's this this there's this beautiful love story that happens while they're in prison that talks about how they met and how this wonderful story happens. But then it, the story usually ends before he comes home. And in many cases, because the man may have life or maybe because he has a much longer sentence and the relation, the book is written before he comes home. But in my case, because I had the perspective of what happens once he comes home, I wanted people to understand that, um, you know, there is a lot that um, these relationships um, uh, face once he comes home and that the fairy tale um, 
love story that they may have had in in while he was in prison um typically you know faces a number of challenges and you know not all of them work out there are some who do but many of them don't and what i want to do is to 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 start a conversation um to help provide resources both to the men and women coming home like therapy you know most men and women coming home aren't given anything they may be given a bus ticket home um they may be given you know um some uh, resources within the first six months or a year in terms of financially but you know they aren't given any resources and therapy should be at the top of that list um but then there are also no resources for the families you know the families are the ones that take on a large um a portion of the weight when someone comes home because they're literally starting their life all over again they're the de facto support system yes yes even if they have things that are pulling on them or as we all do so many things life is complicated yeah yeah and so they're so, so having something in place that could be the, what are you envisioning for this? Is this related to hashtag beyond prison? Like, or is it because, mm. because the reasons for right. And I, and actually I didn't mean to jump in it there. Are there other reasons? Cause you were saying these are the reasons I'm writing yeah. this book. Um, those are the, those are the, the main reasons why. And, you know, I would, I don't have, um, the, the structure set up, um, yet, but I, I do plan to, um, develop some type of, of program or initiative that will address some of these issues um, because the the men and women um, that that come home don't have the support their families don't have the support and we have to stand in the gap for them because I would love to see more successful healthy relationships post-incarceration and that typically doesn't happen let's take a short break and then when we come back we'll talk more today on living writers Ebony Roberts is here I'm T Hetzel we'll be back Love is never having to change who you are, never having to say it's my fault and not me. Love is never having to do something you don't want to do just because you don't want him mad at you. Love is being able to share some secrets from your past without him using them against you when he's mad. Love is having space to do some growing. Man, they won't try to fix you Cause who said you were broken? Who said you were broken? Love will never tear you down Love will lift you up so you can fly So baby, keep your head up to the sky Welcome back. If you're joining in just in time today on the program, Ebony Roberts is here. The book on the table with us out with Amistad HarperCollins, The Love Prison Made and Unmade, My Story. Ebony, thanks so much for being here today. Yes, talking. awesome. Um, so you have, so you've been, you've been touring for the book. You've just recently um, done a TED Talk in Detroit. Yes. Um, can, tell, tell me a little bit. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, about five years ago, Shaka and I um, ended our relationship and decided that we were better as friends than as as partners. And um, we um, had a a son a year after he um, was released from prison, and we he was three, and when we um, broke up. 
And so we had to make a conscious choice to parent him um, despite the failures of our relationship. And that's not always easy when there's a lot of pain and a lot of heartache um, following a breakup. And as a woman, um, as a mother, I made a conscious choice to um, to put aside whatever feelings I had about the things that went wrong in our relationship and, and honor his role as a father in our son's life. And um, we parent as allies and, and not as adversaries. And oftentimes that is the case when relationships don't work out. And um, two weeks ago, we um, did a TED Talk at TEDx Detroit um, about co-parenting um, our son. And it was an amazing experience to be able to get on stage and show people what's possible. And the response was amazing. There were so many people who came up to us afterwards and said, you know, I'm in this situation and, and um, trying to co-parent you know, and it's not working and we can't agree on anything. And, you know, I'm struggling right now. And some people, you know, started crying, telling us their story. And um, I had a man come up to me and say, my divorce will be final tomorrow. And this is all new to me. I've, you know, co-parenting is all new to me. And, and so I feel like, um, you know, Shaka and I met and there was a reason why we met and we're still learning what that reason is. And I know that our ability, that the love that we created, sort of the love that prison made allows us to still be friends, you know. And I think that because, you know, typically relationships start out very hot and heavy, you know, especially if we, you know, sex is in, is, is, is in the picture. And um, sometimes we don't get a chance to know the person. But beyond um, those feelings of, you know, attraction and um, with this um, relationship, we didn't have that as an option. There was no physical intimacy except for holding hands. And we were able to kiss at the beginning and end of a, of a visit for, you know, 30 seconds. But we um, were able to really develop a deep, deep friendship that um that we have been able to um, maintain over the years, despite the fact that, you know, things went wrong in our relationship. And I fell in love with him as a person, not for what he could do for me, um, but just as a person, like who he really was as a person. And so I can look at him now as a father and, and, and love and respect who he is as a father, despite all of the things that, you know, um, may have gone wrong in our relationship. And so um, I think that that was really um, one of the biggest lessons out of all of this is that, you know, love is an energy. The way that I see love, um, love is an energy and love never, which means love never dies. And so it transforms, right? The energy transforms. And so for us, we're not in a romantic partnership anymore. Now we're co-parenting. And, and that the love, love is strong. The love is strong. And we're Real. able to transfer the love we had as romantic partners into, the, into loving our son together and being able to show up for him and show up for each other. Because parenting is hard. You know, we, we, you know, we come to each other and ask for a parenting advice. You know, we don't know everything. And and, you know, we, we ask each other parenting advice, you know, we, um, we truly partner. So I don't make executive decisions about, you know, my child, my son's care or anything that impacts him. Um, 
we make those decisions together. And I think just that that level of respect that we have um, that started, you know, in those early letters and visits and things that we were able to building blocks to the relationship that we have now. And um, I'm excited for people to see the TED Talk, which should be available uh, soon for people to watch. But, you know, I just I hope that we're able to share, you know, share the, the, the love that we have for our son with the world and that people can really see what's possible when, when relationships don't work out, but you still have to, to work together. And I think it'll also, I imagine it will be visible seeing you both on stage and talking together that the love is visible between the two of you, that Mm -hmm. energy, Mm -hmm. um, the, the love of like a deep friendship, like something that other people can't know that both of you know and Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. um so would people be able to um like follow your twitter to find out when the ted talk is released or what are some avenues that um folks can find the talk yeah so i am on all the social media channels on instagram i'm at love is our superpower um on twitter i'm at super love eb eb And um, on Facebook, you can just find me under um, Ebony Roberts. And um, we'll be posting the the talk soon and really excited um, to share um, the um, the book with other people and the the um, the love that that prison that prison made. Ebony, what's your current projects right now? Because it sounds like this this TED talk had been a big a big Mm -hmm. one. And now are you, are you studying or like work, like exploring like this idea of transition? Cause that's transitioning, um, from prison to home and being able to, um, thrive in that and to succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like it is a major focus. Mm -hmm. Um, is this something that you're writing about? Is it going to be another memoir or what shape do you see this taking if this is your subject matter? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to start, um, first with a blog. Um, and I would love to start a, um, like an advice column, Um, I've had so many women who have read the book, um, reach out to me who were or are in the situation um, that I was in, in love with a man in prison. And they have thanked me for telling my story because so many of us live in secret and live um, with so much shame and, um, alienation and, um, we're very, you know, it's a very lonely place to be. And so, um, I don't of course, advise anybody to get into a relationship with a man in prison. But if you are in a relationship, you know, I want to be able to support those women um, and be able to provide the things that I didn't have um, so that they're better prepared than I was for his homecoming. And so if they're because my thing is, is I just want to, you know, if we can if we can save families and save relationships and, you know, I'm um, trying to repair, you know, um, you know, broken relationships, I would love to be able to do that and be able to, what I wasn't able to do with my relationship, I would love to be able to do and help other women do with theirs. So I would love to start with like an advice column and see where that goes. And, and that might lead into some other areas and, and maybe a book, I'm not sure, but um, I definitely want to, um, to, to be a um, of service and a support because I feel like I'm a very spiritual person and I feel like 
you know, God is using me, you know, God used me to help Shaka prepare him, you know, for the life that, you know, that, that God planned for him. And um, God used me with this book and God used me with the TED Talk. And I just really want um, whatever God, you know, wants for people to get out of the book, to get out of the TED Talk, for, for them to get out of whatever they need to get. And with the with your connection to spirituality, how how does that also connect to your writing? I know in on like an an obvious way is that it becomes part of your story. That's mm-hmm. the love prison made. Like you're very clear about that and and showing um, some moments. Um, like one of the moments that stands out to me, I think, is when you were in, um, again, in undergrad like mm-hmm. at Michigan State and you were taking some classes and learned about um, the connection to the ancestors and, mm-hmm. and creating a shrine. Mm-hmm. Um, how but but and also learning from your your mother, not having like a, a regular you don't have to have one church to mm-hmm. go to. Mm-hmm. Is that still um, is it something that you feel that you're is is um is you're carrying with you and that's i don't i don't know and i how and how is that part of what's driving the writing because mm-hmm. that's the way of like telling more people or or connecting with people. Well, you know, I had a process while I was writing the book. Um, Every morning before I wrote, I would pray and meditate and um, would literally invite uh, the ancestors into the space with me. I would light a candle many times. And um, because, again, I wanted to just be a vessel for whatever God wanted this book to be, um, because it wasn't about me. You know, although the, the subtitle is my story, it wasn't just about me because I felt like I was being led to write the story for a reason. I didn't have to write this story. You know, Shaka had written about, you know, our relationship in his memoir and, and I didn't have to write the story, but I felt led to write the story. And I knew if I was being led that there had to be a reason why. And so um, I would just literally sit and pray and meditate before I write and just pray for ease. You know, when you're writing, sometimes you get what's called writer's block, right? And um, sometimes I would just sit there and, and and not allow the writer's block to to overwhelm me. And I would just sit there and meditate. And then the words would come and then I come, I go back, you know, go back to writing. Um, when I was in the throes of writing this book, um, I took a, a break from social media for maybe three months, which really helped me connect spiritually with a higher power because I didn't have all these other thoughts sort of in my head competing with the book, um, competing with whatever messages, you know, um, uh, God was sending me. And so I literally just sat with the book um, and just the book for maybe three months and allowed um, spirit to lead me in terms of what was um what was what I wrote and so three and and after three months you had the full working draft I had the full working draft yeah yeah it's it was it's still very different from this draft um so you know once I got a book deal so I'd written this draft and um I uh, once I got a book deal um working with my editor at Amistad she um she said, we want to know more about you and your childhood. And I had, I had only touched 
on that very briefly in that first draft because I thought, well, everybody wants to know about this relationship. You know, they don't want to know about me as a child like that. You know, and even though I knew there was some things that impacted me as a child that shaped who I became, I didn't think that that was going to be the focus of the book. And so I didn't really write much on it. And so my editor was like, no, we need to hear more about you and learn you so that we can be invested in this relationship. Like we want to know more about you. And in order to be invested in this relationship and care about what happens, we need to know about you. Ebony Roberts, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. This was awesome. I loved it. I loved it. Um, today on Living Writers, Ebony Roberts, the book, The Love Prison Made and Unmade, my story. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jason for engineering. Thanks to Frank Uli for post-production. To George and Home George for our theme song. Until next time. You are everything I ask for in my prayers. So I know my angels brought you to my life. Your energy is here. Yo. I'm in the house now for show. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Enneagram filling in for sports. Everything is just, you know, whatever might have been here, whoever, whomever the ones who came before may be or have been at any given time, uh, that's all, you know, time uh, is just a nebulous mass of goo that we're just forever just kind of running our fingers through and like a big ball of... What was that stuff that was like Play-Doh but cooler? Ooh. I know what you're thinking of. Wasn't it like Crazy Putty or something like that? Crazy Putty. Model Magic, actually, is what... You know how... I don't know if you had this experience, too, but in, like, preschool, if you got the Play-Doh, it was like, yeah, this is cool, totally. But if you got Model Magic, where, like, it's the same consistency of Play-Doh, basically, but, like, it hardens much better, so you can, like, make stuff that lasts with it. That was, like... That was the good stuff. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much to Sam for uh, for, for 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 this TED talk. Um, you are listening to uh, All Things Considered with <laughs> with fresh air. With wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, totally. All right, I'm gonna play this thing that Reverend Andrew recommended to me, and as we were just discussing as well, Reverend Andrew. Uh, has uh, has the hookup for uh, any kind of version of anything. You need a reggae version of that, he's got it. You need a bluegrass version of noise music, he's got that. And that's kind of how he described this album to me. This is the self-titled uh, album. It must